0: Good afternoon this is dr i and i'm with my colleague dr joe and we are looking out the window this morning and in columbus ohio the sun is shining there are very few clouds in the sky it's a beautiful day in columbus ohio and it directly contradicts the environment that we are living in right now um and i'm speaking of the current condition with covid covid is back folks it is raging in florida it is raising in columbus and it appears to be some Uh, confusion over what to do about it from the medical standpoint, from the educational standpoint, from the political standpoint. It is very confusing to those of us who depend upon experts to tell us what to do about this unprecedented health dilemma that we find ourselves in. However, my colleague, Dr. Joe, is here, and she just got back from a beautiful wedding in Hawaii. And so I'm delighted that you're back, and I'm wanting to hear about how everything was a million miles away from Columbus, Ohio.
1: Welcome home. Thank you, aloha, everyone. And we did have a, a beautiful, glorious family event in Hawaii, and it actually ties in exactly to what you were talking about, Dr. Aina. I will say, while I was gone, I tried not to listen to events going on around the world. So now that I'm back, there are things happening in Afghanistan and— 80? And, and, yes. And, but again, as, as our social media commentators commentate on what's going on there, what's happening at home is out of control as it relates, as you said, to COVID. In Hawaii, to get into Hawaii, even though, of course, it's part of the United States, you had to show either uh, a vaccination card or you had to show proof of a negative test several days before you traveled and not just a negative test from anyone. You had to go through one of their service providers. So Hawaii is very stringent. And in fact, the week we got there for the wedding, the governor had imposed once again restrictions on crowd sizes. So we were initially biting our nails that the wedding could go off as planned. It was sufficiently small enough and outdoors, so it did happen. And the governor had also imposed a mask mandate that people they were actually very good about following, especially because tourism is so huge in Hawaii, they just can't afford to shut down again, although they did tell us that their Asian tourist population has not yet been able to come back to Hawaii without coming through the United States if they want to get there because the Asian government is still prohibiting travel so much and of course there is compliance. And so I'm very saddened, you know when we talk about COVID on this show, and we've had wonderful experts to talk about it, and I try very hard not to express my personal opinion because the purpose of the window is to allow other people to reflect based on the expertise of our guests. So I'm going to try not to express my personal opinion and how utterly disappointed and confused I am about a public health crisis with public won't work together in the United States of America for a number of reasons. The most disturbing one is political. And oops, here I go again. I just said I was not going to express my opinion. I, and I
0: gotta put a point out there too. And Iris Cooper is over in the corner. This is somebody else talking for her. Orlando, where all of the cases are just exploding. But guess what else is going on in Orlando? Amusement parks, vacations, people that are wanting and demanding that we're going to stay open because we got to make money. That's how it becomes political. The people with the money pressure the people in control. Forget about the illnesses. We got to keep these doors open. And that's one of the biggest
1: points of confusion across the nation, not to mention those who are pandering to try to get the votes of a certain market segment. And so as we look at schools reopening, there are schools that are requiring masks. There are schools that are requiring vaccination. Same is true for churches. There are schools that are requiring um, uh, negative tests, but then there are government officials, elected officials, who are coming out with various mandates that prohibit those types of restrictions from going into place. And so, oops, there I go again, sliding into my personal opinion. But I really don't have to do that today because, as always, we have absolutely stellar guests who agree to to invest their time and their energy and expertise in helping our audience understand what's going on based on facts and not fiction and not rumor, and therefore form your own opinions, not to be biased at all by mine, which I'll probably continue to state throughout the program and so
0: and we understand that there are some of
1: our folks out there that will never forget the tuskegee experiment and by our folks we mean people of color and certainly we have a reason to be Um, suspicious if you will based on in particular what's happened to people of color in the past but we've had so many wonderful experts on our show alone who are people who look like us not to mention the work that they're doing out in the public as a whole and so this is exactly what we've said we wanted people who look like us people who care about us people who have the expertise to come to us and to talk to us about what's going on and help us reflect through the window. And so today we're delighted to have one of those experts in studio with us. She's someone who I've had the pleasure of just meeting within the past few years. I feel like I've known her all my life though, because of ways that her expertise has impacted me, not only professionally in terms of our work together, but also personally, because some of the experiences that I've had in my real life are very consistent with the types of things that she right now is lending her expertise to. So, Dr. Patricia Lyons, we are so happy to have you here with us on the window. I'm going to, throughout the show, talk about your expertise, but for right now, I'd like for our listeners to know that you're currently Director of the Social Determinants of Health Innovation Center at Melina Healthcare, and we'll ask you to tell us more about that. But your background is so extensive in areas related to healthcare and cultural competency that congratulations are in thank order. You. Because if my understanding is correct, you were recently nominated to the Hall of Fame that of the College correct. of Social Work at The Ohio State University. Absolutely. Congratulations. And, uh, yes, that a huge wow. So again, welcome to the window.
2: Well, thank you. And, and I appreciate the window because one of the things that you can do at a window, you can choose to look out or you can choose to see what's looking in. You can raise the window up, or you can choose to mm-hmm. let the window down. Mm-hmm. And so today, um, just in what you talked about in your introduction, a lot of what we will spend some time on and with the audience, you know, I'm grateful for your listening. Um, but to know that, let's do a couple of things. Let's First of all, let's just set the stage to do two things I always ask. One is to lean into discomfort, because when we're talking about things such as health care, and today I really want to talk about health literacy, um, to lean into that, because there's a lot of things that are unknown. There are a lot of components that are confusing, and health is complex. um, And health is more than health care. And so that's really where I want to focus on. Um, And then to assume innocence. And when I say assume innocence, it's not, uh, given a blind side but it has taken the notion that when something is stated that it is not intended to do harm um, we know what harm looks like and we know when those intentions are there but for the sake of the conversation and for the sake of you know the audience that we are trying to compel um, education can be very um enlisting of those kinds of fearful thoughts, um, the what-ifs, and and all of the other components. And so it creates a level where we assume that someone is out to harm us. And and there's these kinds of things. And we know what that looks like as an African-American female, you know, as a sister from Chicago, and all the other components. Um, There's no hidden agenda. And so today I also want to represent a broader perspective of not just my uh, My background, but also in talking about the National Association of Black Social Work, because again, in my role as a black social worker, I have to make sure that everything that I do is clearly understood from the perspective that I make no difference between my destination and that of my brothers and sisters. And so with that, that means that despite where the learning curves may be, despite the choices that we may make that I still am under the assumed depression that listen if I want good health so does my brother so does my sister and despite what that might look like despite the media perception despite the portrayals the conversations the nuggets of information that gets put out there um, that I know that my brother and sister when I see them in whatever capacity that I see them that they, true, they too, do want good health care, and they want to be healthy, they want to be safe, and that um, if I start there, then we can get to where we're trying to all go together. My mom was a social worker, and I have always felt that
0: people that go into social work need to be um, heralded and celebrated for the work that they mm-hmm. do. They're like... Um, The forgotten leaders of the community and I admire your commitment to the community and um, just think that social work will be the leader of us getting out of this mess that we're living in right now
2: yeah so let's let's talk about that because even in our field you know one of the things that we have to talk about is the disparities because again when we talk about health literacy we talk about health education we talk about education in general um, black social work exists for a reason, you know, there, there are social work entities, but if, as a black social worker we make it very, very clear that there are some things that are very upfront um, that we have to be clear about. Making sure to talk about what is needed in our community, making sure that the folks who serve in our community look like us and understand that. And also just understand this whole notion that we're going to get to today from the questions that you may have and filling your audience space.
1: And I wanted to clarify. First, Dr. Pat is not just any social worker. Dr. Pat is president of the Columbus chapter of black social workers. And so again, thank you for your service. And also to clarify what you said, Dr. I and I talked about COVID to start this show because we both feel very passionately about it. But today when we approached you to see if you would spend time with us, when we asked you what you thought was most important to get across, what you said, and I wanna be sure our audience understands today, we're not just gonna talk about COVID, although we're gonna come back to that, but this whole issue of health Literacy. Yes. We talk about being healthy in all aspects of our life, but it's hard to do something if you don't truly understand Absolutely. that something. So that I want to be sure it. that we understand that's what we're going to talk about, health literacy, starting out with what does
2: that yes. mean? Well, first, let me go back to the, the notion of COVID. So there's 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 conversation, there's confusion, there's complexities, you know, all the seeds that we can think of. Um, but there has to be a level of compassion, too. Because this is a health pandemic and it's unprecedented, which means that none of us knew. None of us knew those things that we are facing today. We don't know what we're going to face tomorrow. And so, and and in knowing that, that's where health literacy becomes very essential to understanding that COVID, even in what one would assume to be leaving or uh, being remedied, um, Health literacy still is there because we don't know what to do about it. We don't understand it. And so when I am talking about health literacy and its complexities, I'm really talking about, do you understand the prescription that a doctor has given you? Do you know what it means to take something BID? And so now, or or twice a day or three times a day. When a doctor gives you a script and says, take it twice a day, do you know that is there a certain time that you to take the medicine? Is it 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock? Is it 5 and 4 o'clock? Or am I left to my own discretion to do so? But first of all, am I even comfortable asking the question?
1: Okay, we're going to ask the question. Dr. <laughs> I, and I look at, and I look at each other. What is BID as yeah, so, it relates really
2: to? So again, That's those are the medical terms twice a day. Um, and so again, when we use those medical terminology, part of health literacy is understanding that as a healthcare profession, I am also accountable for the language that I use, right? And so when I am talking about diabetes mellitus and my mother may recognize sugar, We did a lot of work um, over the past years, you know, about making sure the language lines up culturally affirming and all of those components. That's the basis of health literacy there and understanding how we how we relate to words. When I go out and I talk about hypertension and I'm talking to someone about hypertension and they have no idea. But are they comfortable enough or am I empowering them enough so that they say, well, wait, wait a minute, I'm not sure I understand what you mean by that. Because then if I say high blood pressure, the light bulb goes on. And so it, it is the onus of us to understand the language in its entirety and how the language is used and what it means in our culture and other cultures as well as a healthcare professional. Um, and so when, when we think about that, because if I go out on the street and say, can you tell me about hypertension? Most of the time, folks will start to tell me about things that are symbolic of hyperactivity because of the word hyper and how it has been socialized and we don't think about the connection to the tension versus activity and so that's the first thing and then in our environment we also have to be cognizant of making information in a readable form right you know we have a world where still millions of us are underinsured underinsured across the united states brothers and sisters and it's not because they're not eligible Oftentimes it's because we can't read the application. And it has nothing to do with whether or not Pat has achieved a high school education or a college education. Yes, those things do impact it, but health literacy is more than just whether or not someone has achieved a grade, whether or not someone has accumulated the knowledge based from an academic perspective. Because we have a lot of folks who are very highly intelligent, have achieved high school graduate degrees, and when you talk about health, it is still that question of concern. I mean, we've seen some things that we want to write off to health literacy when we have folks make statements about us as uh, people of color. You know, we want to just kind of sign it to, okay, they're just ignorant about that. But some of that is that foundational entity of literacy and understand what that means about health and health care. something that people don't wash their hands, for example. You know, nothing can be furthest from the truth. However, when those things get inserted, then that's how distortion happens. And it is really health health um, literacy that leads to disparities in healthcare. That is one of the fundamental principles as to why we have such wide disparities, because we have such wide differences of understanding health. What does it mean? How to apply it? Um, how to understand it? Even in my power to ask the question, take the medicine, Dr. I. Well, you know what? I have two prescriptions
0: and I have read the information that comes from the pharmacy and I know nothing more after reading it than I did when I started.
2: And that is It is
0: written in another language that has nothing to do with my education. I just don't understand what's being written down and then I have to make a decision. Do I trust the Walmart pharmacist? Or do I call my doctor, try to get in touch with her? It's really a a kind of a, a, a wall mm-hmm. between me and understanding why, what this medicine is I'm
2: taking. And is it good for me or is it bad for me? And And that's the fundamental thing because both of those questions should have been a yes. Yes, you should call your pharmacist because the pharmacist plays a key role in understanding that. The pharmacist is key because most of us, if nothing else, we know the pharmacist. where we go to the same place to pick our medication up, the pharmacist knows a little bit about us, but we never ask the question. Every so often, the pharmacist may say to you, is your doctor aware that you're taking this? And that feels pretty strange as someone you're going in to get something that the doctor obviously prescribed, and the pharmacist is asking you, does your doctor know what you're taking? And your
0: sometimes status? there's conflict between the pharmacist Absolutely. and the doctor.
2: Right. And so in doing so, how do we empower our communities to to raise the question to say, hey, Dr. X, my, my pharmacist asked me to ask you if this medicine is something I should be taking. And so just the basis of that, and, and so the first thing we need to do is understand that health literacy is is impactful in several ways. One, it is how it's how healthcare is socialized. What does it mean to go to a doctor? What does it mean to be sick? What does it mean, you know, when we talk about the, the perception of it and the perception of it? What do all of those things, how do we promote health care? Um, particularly when we talk about mental health care. You know, I want to wrap that into this health literacy component. Then the other piece is how, how, it, how we think about it. How do we think about mental health literacy? Because health literacy is mental health literacy. Mm -hmm. If I am more literate about health care, I am more likely to be a little more informed about mental health literacy. And then it's also the actions or activities that are associated with it. And so the reason why I'm calling out mental health is because there's oftentimes a carve out. We talk about health and then we say, oh, oh, and then there's this mental health. Well mental health is health care and they're all combined together. How I feel, what I have access to will inform how my mental health will show up today.
0: And we don't want to always
1: want people to know that our mental health is shaky.
2: Absolutely. And sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we don't.
1: So as we get ready to go to a break then to summarize what we've talked about so far, because this is critically important. The first thing is that, of course, our health is important. Absolutely. And it's a topic that we sometimes ignore. We're in the midst of doing things and we say, gee, my stomach hurts, my head hurts. I'll get around to that. And so what we don't know can hurt us because as we say, okay, maybe I should check into this chronic ringing in my ears I've had. How do we go about doing that in a way that results in us taking the proper steps we need along with a healthcare practitioner to check into that? And so we'll talk more about health literacy with Dr. Pat Lyons, the award-winning social worker, Dr. Pat Lyons, when we come back in just a moment on the window. This is
0: going well. Okay, good.
1: We are back on the window. I'm Dr. Joanna Williamson with my co-host, Dr. Iris Cooper, and we are talking to Dr. Patricia Lyons about health literacy. You know, I'm glancing at her resume, and oh my gosh, the list of things she has done. She has done extensive work with Nationwide Children's Hospital here in Columbus, Ohio. (coughs) Excuse me, she's a consultant. She's most recently been the facilitator and program manager of the Commission on Black Girls. that was commissioned by the city of Columbus Columbus City Council. She's worked with Mount Melina Healthcare and and currently does work with Melina Healthcare. She's been Executive Director for the Center for Epidemiological Research for Individuals with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. So she has a four or five page resume and that's not even her publication. (laughs) And the reason that I say that is first because as we already talked about, who you're getting your information from is so important. Yes. We live in an over-information, disinformation, misinformation kind of world where I can go to social media and get everything diagnosed Anything. from who I voted for to why my toe That's hurts correct. and a lot of it is wrong information. So who we get our information from is important. Qualifications matter and especially for people of color or disenfranchised populations Absolutely. or populations who always end up at the bottom of the list as a it relates to health care factors. It's so important that we have people can trust. And, and Dr. Pat, to turn it back over to you, I was going to ask... How, as we continue our discussion, how it is we become more health literate, but I'll share with you real quickly what I learned okay. that a relationship with a healthcare provider is just that. It's a relationship. Yes. And so whether it's mental health, physical health, your children's health, elder care, all of which I had I wish we had time to talk mm-hmm. about. If you're working with a healthcare practitioner and they're not answering your questions, or they're not using terms that you understand, or they can't return your calls, or well, I love the fact that a lot of our healthcare systems Now have my chart kind of configurations where you can send an email message and telehealth. If that's not working to you, it's time to get a divorce from that practitioner. It's usually painless. (laughs) So
2: what what I would like to say in in that regard is first, let's, let's assess the situation, right? Because because when Dr. I don't call me back at the moment when I'm feeling my worst is very crucial than when Dr. I don't call me back and I'm feeling good and I just had a question. Mm-hmm. And so first of all we have to really take an inventory of what our what we can tolerate you know so so that relationship is very important but the tolerance of how much we think we can give um, is, is very crucial too. And so in having a relationship it is not okay. That, you know, because I have a relationship with Dr. I that she didn't call me back for a week, you know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think we miss the step in thinking of that relationship and therefore our health needs aren't getting addressed in a timely fashion because we're given too much to the notion of the relationship. But that's just a small portion of it. The other portion is having a great relationship where... When the doctor's saying to you, Pat, I need you to lose about five more pounds, you know that I'm not offended by it and deciding to listen. I'm not going back anymore. Um, and so it is an exchange process. And and also, family, I want you to understand. You also pay, play key in the role of health literacy. You know get in the business of being in the business right you know don't don't say well I don't want to ask because I don't want her to know um, or I don't want him to know or he always asking these questions you know that's very very important you know get in the business of being in the business because you know understanding what your family member is going through is crucial in their development of their literacy and also being capable of saying to them i see these things i know you may not be aware of them but i am concerned and so expressing a concern um, comment or even saying are you aware do you know what you're taking you know when parents come home we're comfortable with our parents as they're aging in place we're comfortable saying well mom tell me what you're taking what is it for those kinds of things but then my 32 year old daughter we won't ask the question. Or my 16-year-old who they prescribed a pain medicine because he um, broke his ankle or something, and I'm not thinking of what are the ramifications of that medication at my 16-year-old and all of the other components. And so that's what we mean about this whole issue around health literacy and family. So family, I'm saying to you, as a matter of fact, I'm calling on you to get in the business of being in the business, okay? (laughs) Because when it comes to healthcare, You know, we want to afford privacy. We want to afford confidentiality. We want to afford the ability for everyone to self-determine their care. However, it is crucial that we don't move back so far that in that self-determine, if I am not capable of making some of those decisions, um, and we know what that looks like. I don't mean that I'm making a decision that you don't like. I mean that I'm making a decision that everyone can see is causing some kind of harm. Um, somewhere that we're comfortable getting engaged in that to bring it into an intersection and being part of that now when it comes to the health care you may not be able to access that information because again we have to afford privacy we have to afford confidentiality we have to afford the ability for everyone to be able to feel like they can be self-determined in their decision but it's okay to call to the physician or the doctor or the health care to say I need help because my so-and-so, my cousin, my brother, hey, I got a neighbor that's doing something here. Can you tell me something, or can you give me some advice?
0: You are taking some of the content out of my sermon (laughs) to the generations that follow me. Yes. Um, I would give anything to have my father and my mother recorded about their health care and what they went through. And Unfortunately, when I could have done that, technology wasn't a part of my life. But now, as I get older, I'd love to know what medicines my mother was taking and, and why. Mm-hmm. And my father had high blood pressure, and he had gout, mm-hmm. and I didn't pay attention to that. So I'm saying to all of you out there in in Internet radio land, if your parents, if your elders are still around, find out about their lives and what they were dealing with and their history, not just what they were doing for uh, uh, occupation, but Mm -hmm. what were their health challenges as well. Absolutely.
2: And and in addition to that, I want to say we have a very, very vital population that, that oftentimes get looked away from depending on the situation. Our reproductive age youth meaning both male and female um, you know, there, there is a heightening, and it must be a height, we cannot afford to go away from what's happening in maternal health care. Um, you know, I've been to some places where folks have said, you know, the health system to black pregnant women is like the police system to black men. And so when you hear that, 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 that is very heartening. Um, perception to think that black women are, are getting such subservient um, attention around their pregnancy and reproductive care. We're losing black women who when we control for age, we control for social situations, we control for economic, we control for education, we are still losing black women in the health and the birthing process. Why is that? Why are we still losing black babies at two times the rate of white babies? Why are we still having these conversations that have been around for a long time? And so although the field is now getting comfortable with terming social determinants of health or health literacy, these are things that we have always been facing and we continue to face them and so When we put the light on them, what is the action behind it? What are we going to do about that? How are we going to begin to talk to uh, our health providers? How are we going to begin to empower African-American and black women around the birthing process and what does that look like? What are some innovative ways that we can support the work that we know works for black women? And one of those key essential pieces is around mentoring, period. Mentoring creates a relationship, whether it's with male or female, where oftentimes I am checking in with that person. They're asking me, how am I doing? Mm -hmm. Typically, when a young person won't talk to a family member, they'll share with a mentor. And so even our mentoring relationships are opportunities for us to increase the the educational um, around literacy, because that mentor will say, what do you mean your arm hurt? Well, how long has it been hurting? And the mentor will then come back and say to the parent or the family or the caregiver, Pat said her arm's been hurting for a week. That is the first time, that is the first type of intervention that costs us nothing. That we don't even think about coining and we don't even think about championing around health literacy. Even when we talk about older adults, you know, mentoring don't stop when I get to a certain age, you know, throughout my life trajectory, mentoring is essential. And so when I'm talking to my sister friends and they're like, what do you mean you've been having this headache for a week? girl that's not normal you know or hey man what do you mean this is going on i I don't get it
0: well men don't talk about stuff like that well and
2: and see that's the thing too because we also have to create a space where they can right and so so i am under the perception that and the belief that people don't talk where they're not allowed to be heard right and so oftentimes you know when i used to have the whole thing about the extinguishing black family remember that and all those magazines and folks bought into oh my god black families are going to go away and it's like no No, and stop writing about that in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we we give space to what we can do, I think we can honor that. And so because black men have always been told and heard that they don't talk about it, so even when we find one that does feel comfortable talking about his health and his health care, you know, how people receive that determines whether or not that person is going to be more forthcoming. And so we we are grateful for things like the African-American wellness walk, right? Because those are opportunities where we take that stereotype away and we say, listen, to be strong is to be encouraged enough to come get help, not to go away from it, right? And so we say the same thing, too, with women. Because women will say, well, women put their health care on the back burner, too. It's always the family. It's my spouse, my significant other. It's the job. It's, It's all of these things but me. You know, and part of that is um, women's knowledge about what it is, right? What is it instead of feeling blue? We can color it all day long, Mm -hmm. right? But what do we do about feeling blue, Mm -hmm. right? You know, so for those of you who are on a call, blue to us in the African-American community, particularly those of us who are older, blue meant depressed, Mm -hmm. right? Sad. It did did not mean sky blue. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about feeling blue or I had a nervous breakdown, You know, we grew up in an era where those types of words were used instead of saying that that person had some mental health care that was needed. A nervous breakdown for a young child, can you imagine? Just think of that, if you can just walk with me for this second and you think of hearing a nervous breakdown and you know the nerves are something in your body and your thought is that these nerves are breaking down and somewhere they're landing in the feet or on the floor where you can see them. Mental health is not something that you necessarily see. It's it's not something that you don't see. You see activity. You don't see mental health. And so because of the sight unseen, when we look at people, we dismiss the pain and the hurt and the health that's needed around that. And so when a young person grows up thinking that mental a, a nervous breakdown is something that, okay, I don't even know what that looks like. In that language, that's what I'm talking about around health literacy. As a health professional, I need to know how my person, my patient, my client, my participant is feeling about their health and how, what words they use. It's up to me to ask them, when you say that, what does that mean? So that I can give them some language exchange, so that I can help them understand, okay, because when I say this, this is what I mean. When I say, how have you eaten today, or what have you eaten today? I really want to know, what did you have? What did you have and I wanted all those things? And so understanding just the 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 limitations in how we engage create why we are having this disparate care. Because we can talk about the other issue of the racism that happens in terms of the delivery process. That's a whole nother conversation. But if we can get our literacy around health care, mental health care, you know, to the point where we understand these things, then we can address that other piece. Real easy. We can address that real easy. But when I can't point to it and can't figure it out and can't do it, then what happens is I am then somewhere statistically becoming someone's decision maker about what we as African-American and black people don't benefit from or won't participate in. And that leads me back to COVID. Before
1: we go back into COVID, because you know we could go there for a while, and I wanna talk more about mental health too, but let's be sure that that our audience is hearing everything you've said, because you've made some important points. So first, let me say that while Dr. Pat was talking, I had to step out of the room for a moment to, to cough, and I've had this chronic cough for two years now. And so as we're talking about health literacy, what we've been saying is first be aware of your health. And so if I've had a two year chronic cough, It seems to me that based on our discussion today, that not only should I go someplace, but the two people here in the studio with me should say, gee, what's with that cough? You should really find someone you trust Mm -hmm. and respect to go to and say, I'm going to take off the Superwoman cape long enough to say, I've had a chronic cough for two years. It might be something minor that can be addressed. It might be something major that needs to happen. So being aware of our health, taking steps to do something about our health. Someone in the studio just brought me tissues as as part of what we're saying. But being aware of our health, taking steps to address our health, talking to others we know and love. If we see someone who we think has an issue that needs to be addressed, developing a trusting relationship with our service providers is all critically important. You also mentioned people of childbearing years, which yes. of course is of special interest to you since yes. you're about, what, a month away. From That's being right. a first-time grandparent. Yes. I thought you were getting ready since she was
0: pregnant. I was going to say, stop the presses right we now. We really have a medical, a <laughs> yeah. medical miracle. Oh, my body. goodness. Right.
1: <laughs> but congratulations Thank for you. that, although you've been involved in the lives of many young people. And I want to talk to you for just a moment, not just about... Health care during pregnancy, and by the way, dads, that's part of your responsibility too. That's I know correct. that, that, that the, 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 the father of your soon-to-be-born grandchild has been very much involved yes. with, the, with the, the mom, and of course the child, and that's important. But there's this thing called adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. Once a child is born, can you briefly, we have a few minutes sure. before break, so can you briefly sure. tell us what that is and the impact on the
2: health sure, down absolutely. the road? So ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences, it really is when you think of all the things that happen to you in the trajectory of a lifetime. So we start to look at from birth, how many connections do young people have? How many people do you have that are supporting you in the third grade? Do you live in a household where you have access to food? Um, do you know the, the career path of your parents as you age? Have you had housing insecurity? Is there someone in your home has, who has been incarcerated? Um Do you have a parent or two parents in your home? Are you living with a grandparent? Do you have a place to sleep, or are you sleeping on an auntie's couch? All of those things when I grew up in my neighborhood, you know, we burned trash at the end of the road, have no idea of the pollution that was involved. You know, I lived in what's now considered the concrete jungle because again, the pollution in the air environment we had no idea. We played on steel toys and old refrigerators that were tossed out. Um, because we lived in a a lower-income community, and so we had no idea about the Freon and all the other stuff that's in refrigerators. You know, we'd play in them forever. You know, when the rainwater would come, we would play in the flooded water, not understanding about the bacteria that's out there. All of these experiences, although to me, that childhood appeared to be really good, All of those experiences really shape our understanding about what the experience is. I lived in a place where there's lots of gun violence and all of those things. And so thinking of that stressor normally as we grow into our adulthood, this is what impacts us. And so we'll share more as we come back. And thank you. Fear.
0: Fear of what you know. Fear of what you don't know fear of what it's gonna to do to your family, your friends, your marriage, your significant other. Sometimes
2: we are just afraid of tomorrow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so when we think of fear in, in reference to literacy and health, um, ignorance is not bliss. I know we've heard of that, we've been socialized to that. Ignorance is not bliss because when you are informed you are capable of making some decisions, even if you choose not to make one, because that is a decision in and of itself. And that's one of the things that I want our audience to understand. The decision to not make a decision is a conscious decision. However, if I don't know it and I am not making a decision, that's a fault. That's a fault of the folks who are responsible for helping me learn. That's a fault of the professionals who are also serving me, because I should have the information to make the decision. And as a a healthcare seeker, it is your right to have that healthcare provider inform you, provide you with what you need to know in the manner to which you need to know it. And so, we're doing work on both sides of that. You know, all in the field, across the board, we are really trying to galvanize that. And so, fear in of itself is just recognizing that if you are afraid, that you are afraid, and that's okay. Um, that there's no reward that's going to be given to you by hiding the fear. You're not going to gain anything by hiding it. As a matter of fact, you'll do more harm than good. Um, and fear and finding out doesn't make you worse. You know, it, it's sort of like that, that old tale that if we educate people about this, then they'll do more of it. It's like that could be furthest from the truth. Nothing can be furthest from the truth. We don't hide information from people it be, so that they don't make decisions. That, that's not okay. And so, so, yes, fear is part of health care um, because it's unknown, particularly when you have conditions where there's no direct answer. Or let me talk about when you're trying to find an answer. Dr. J mentioned that, that, that cough she has, right? And so her thought is, I'm going to go to this doctor and, and I'm going to tell them I have this two cough, and they're gonna, I'm going to walk out with a diagnosis. Probably not. What she may walk out with is a series of things that will have to be done in order for that healthcare professionals to really make a informed decision about or an informed treatment. It may be that she has to do some testing. It may be that she has to do a couple of things that she gotta provide feedback on. It may be all of those things or it may be none of them. But once we do get encouraged enough to go we have to also remember that that is the first time that person's hearing what it is that we're bringing forth, and so it's not always a magic answer. And so we have to go through a process to now find out. So here's a couple of things I want us to do. If we are going to live in the fear and we have these conditions, then I want us to be very informed. So you take the initiative and you write down all the information. Tell me what it is that you're doing, when you're doing it, how often is it. So, for example, let's use the cough. How often are you coughing? When are you coughing? Write it down every time you're coughing so that when you go, you can give this diary of information that will sort of speed or expedite what it is that you want to do. Because without those things, a, a healthcare professional can only make um, a diagnosis or a treatment outcome Or trajectory, Based on what you're bringing them at the moment And that at the moment Is very very crucial At the moment And so at the moment I don't know what Joanne has brought into my office To tell me she had a cough for two years I don't know what to tell her Other than let's try a few things unless she's bringing me a lot of information that I still have to take a step back to inform myself on what she's brought to me and really look at all those other things her age I got to look at her her in what what she does in her home what she's been exposed to she's been traveling I have to look at that or if you don't travel I have to look at that if you live in an area environment that's more condensed in an area that has more greenery I have to look at those and if you are a swimmer I have to look at that how do you swallow? All of these things come into play for just what? That slight little non-bothersome cough that she just described. And, and by
1: putting it off for two years, of course, I've lost the benefit of early detection if in yes. fact there is something going on. Now, I have, look, I have looked it up on the internet, though. Yes. I've been an internet healthcare <laughs> practitioner. And let me say, too, that I am I'm blessed to have health insurance yes. to be able to do mm-hmm. the types of things that you're suggesting. Absolutely. What about those who don't have?
2: Which is very crucial, I'm sorry, which is very, very crucial because, again, if you remember when I started, I I talked about um, individuals who are underinsured or have no insurance because the application process, when we pull up most applications for health care, particularly if you are applying for health care, first of all, if you're the age of 60 and over or you have a condition where it's a Medicare type application or Social Security application, you have to put it, the language is just so so cumbersome that most folks don't understand that. Then we go into that middle range where even when you are working and you can are a health care, most of the time you check the box and you get it, but you haven't really read the content of the information. You're just happy that you have what you think is health insurance. And then we have the population that is more of our Medicaid eligible population, um, which most people socially assign to lower income pop, um, population. And that population is severely underinsured as well because not just because they're not eligible for um, the benefits, but when you pull those applications across the board, good health literacy and information is written at a third grade level. Most of those applications, if you look at them, they're really written at a high school level. And so when you think of the age, the grade, educational difference in the language and the wording, it's no wonder oftentimes people will say, well, I just didn't apply because they don't want to say that they didn't know how to fill out the application. They didn't know who could help them fill out the application. Um, and more so, if they filled out the application and they didn't get certain things in there, they didn't know understand what the letter that came to say that they didn't qualify, what that meant they needed to do. And so they just sort of tuck it away and say, well, I'm not eligible anyway. And so what we're asking, you know, in a lot of our health our, our places that sign folks up, we have um, community health workers that sign folks up. Part of that is partnering with that person who needs the health insurance so that we can help, understand, help educate them on how to do the application. We can empower them to ask questions. Um, we can then, or if they've already filled it out and been um, um, found uneligible, we can educate them on how to make an appeal. Because most of the time, people who appeal their, their terminations or their rejections are usually eligible. Most people who think they are eligible for medical insurance are eligible. It's just that they don't know how to navigate that in the language that it comes back in. You know, uh, my mother, for example, you know, when she gets her papers around her eligibility, boy, they send you a whole lot of papers. The first page has the information she needs. All the other pages are about if she wants a hearing. (laughs) Right. And what I tell folks is that she's going to bring it to me and I have to read it. So, yeah. so I have to interpret it for her, and then I have to let her know in, how she's com- in her language and what she feels comfortable with, what needs to happen, so that she can get it. But that's a process that happens often, and sometimes it's missing.
0: Dr. Pat, I want to put this, to- this topic out for you, natural health. Mm-hmm. Um, 25 years ago, I had sinus infections mm-hmm. constantly. I could go into a building Mm -hmm. and feel myself getting sick. And I would continue to get antibiotics, and it was the same old thing year after year, and I was missing work, it just wasn't working. Well, someone referred me to a naturopath or natural Mm -hmm. doctor out in the boondock somewhere, and they did a, a series of batteries asking me questions and everything. And they said there was some kind of bacteria in my intestine called candida yeast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the way to stop this was to fast. So for two weeks, I drank a apple cider vinegar, lemonade thing. I lost a bunch of weight. It was hard the first five days. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is I don't have
2: that problem anymore. And so when we think about health over health care, so first of all, I want to say to folks that they both can exist simultaneously, right? They can both exist. And so think about what we used to do. You know, my mother used to line us up and give us all Fathers John and Castro on spring Mm -hmm. break. And she believed that that was going to be the magic cure for us. And we all lined up. It was six of us. And we all took our spoonful and, you know, moved on, you know, down the line. And it was spring break because spring break was the magical time to clean out the digestive system that she believed that if our gut was healthy, the rest of us was mm-hmm. healthy. Now, 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 here's where literacy come in. Whether true or not that happened, our family bought into that notion and it, it created this pathway to outside of other unknown bacteria, we all appear to be doing well. She didn't have no doctorate degree. As a matter of fact, she didn't have a high school degree. Mm-hmm. And so so some things, home remedies, as we call them, you know, when my grandmother would take an onion and put them on the bottom of your feet and say it's going <laughs> to pull out, you know, we could laugh at it. Yeah. We're going to pull out. And so when I tell folks that they're like, where did you grow up at again? <laughs> it's like, yes, these are real things. Or things that we used to do, for example, we would put a spoonful of, that um ointment that you put on your body um vixas, vixas. and tea and we would drink it mm-hmm. now if i told my healthcare friends that those of you who are listening don't be making no statements about dr pax they would be like that's poison you don't <laughs> ingest that anymore and so again understanding That You know, we grew up with Vaseline. Suddenly, now, have you been hearing the commercials over the past year or so about Vaseline in the country of Africa? And they're talking about the benefits of the skin and all of those things. Um, So, again, some of the components that we talk about are definitely very good in a natural sense. And we need to also have sometimes this medical uh, model to understand how to integrate both of them because they're both keenly important in the process We can't necessarily do all of one and all of nothing, because when I get sick in my health arena, guess what's going to happen? Whether I want to or not, I'm going to land in somebody's health facility. They're not going to be doing that natural thing. And so this is why it's important. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, this is why we have to talk about it, because sometimes we avoid those health facilities because we say, well, I'm doing this natural thing. The greatest physician of all is the one that hears the patient and understands that the patient's culture, their, their relevancy about their environment are also part of what you're treating when they're giving you their symptomology. Mm-hmm. And so we have to really continue to push that across the board. So don't shy away from it, audience. If, if you have a question... Don't shy away from them. If you have some unanswered point, don't ignore it. If you have something happening, you know, hold everyone accountable. Hold everyone around you accountable for that. And don't ignore the oozing. We know those things. If it's oozing, snoozing, losing, it's a problem, (laughs) right? But it's the other things that we can't necessarily put our finger on that we want to talk about.
1: Unfortunately, excuse me, there's that raspiness again. Unfortunately, our time is almost up. So I want to summarize two other key points that you and I talked about offline, just so we don't end without our audience hearing it. We talked about mental health briefly, so critically important, such awareness has been brought to it over the past COVID year, and that's a good thing but mental health practitioners are hard to find. You and I talked about Mm -hmm. that. You were very honest with me and said that psychologists as well as psychiatrists who can prescribe medication, that there's still a shortage. I asked you, what do we do about that? One thing that you said was that family members who are caring for people, and caregivers have a special place in heaven, caregivers who are caring for people who have mental health issues while getting on those long waiting lists for healthcare providers need support. So don't say, gee, cousin Betty is the one who always takes care of family. We'll send cousin Cousin Betty Betty. a card and bring her some biscuits. Help cousin Betty, so That's cousin right. Betty's health care yes. doesn't suffer while yes. we're waiting to get yes. treatment for those who do need uh, mental health treatment. Keep them girded mm-hmm. up. Keep cousin Betty mm-hmm. girded up. The second thing is we will end on the note in which we began. As it relates to COVID, I, in the midst of my angst and anger now, I've said to people, if you have a better solution for how we get to the other side of COVID than what our healthcare practitioners are telling us, which is please take the vaccine unless there's some reason that a very small percentage of people Mm -hmm. have for their healthcare provider telling them not to. Please take the vaccine. We've taken vaccines for years. Please take the vaccine. Please stay masked up for now while we're still dealing with these new variants and and an unvaccinated population please continue to practice social distancing. It's a public health issue, like running red lights. Mm -hmm. It's not just a political issue. And so you and I have talked about that. And I will say once again, if anybody has a better solution than the scientists and the healthcare practitioners and people like Dr. Pat who work in the environment with those professionals, as well as those of us, if you have a better solution, let us know. But for right now, the vaccine and a third dose of it, perhaps because Mm -hmm. folks didn't take the first two doses, but the vaccine, yes. masking up, and social distancing are the best solutions, and they appear to be fairly effective Absolutely. solutions if we do it to get to the other side of this, including your children yes. as they go back to school almost precious commodities. Yes, Dr. Patricia Lyons, thank you so much. Congratulations again for your award for the it. Hall of Fame for the, <laughs> the Ohio State University College of Social Work Hall of Fame. We've gotten a taste of you over the past hour and we that. so appreciate what you've told us about health literacy. Hopefully, <laughs> Dr. I, we've helped our listeners oh my gosh. know better you so that they can have, do better.
0: You have done just a phenomenal job of breaking away some of the the, the curtains mm-hmm. to the window. We
2: can raise the window. A uh-huh, raise the, the way, uh huh. Raise it up. Yeah.
0: And, okay. and we can see a little bit more
1: out the window about health care. Thank That's you. Good. You're welcome. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for joining us here. Come back next week, 12 noon Eastern time, 1580thepraise.com for the window.
2: Okay. Your next topic. <clears throat> yeah.